Thank you for downloading this sermon from Trinity Presbyterian Church in Spartanburg, South Carolina. For more information about Trinity, visit our website at www.trinityspartanburg.com. Open your Bibles to 1 Timothy chapter 1. And please stand for the reading of God's Word. We'll be reading the first two verses of 1 Timothy. This is the Word of the Lord. It is eternally true. Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus according to the commandment of God our Savior and of Christ Jesus who is our hope, to Timothy, my true child in the faith, grace, mercy, and peace from God the Father in Christ Jesus our Lord. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Be seated. So when we first meet Paul, or rather Saul, in the scriptures, he's, he is a hater of the church. He's a violent persecutor of the brethren. He's a Pharisee trained by the best teacher of the age. He's uh, an agent of the Sanhedrin. He's a man not merely apathetic about Jesus Christ, but he is dead set in violent opposition to Jesus Christ and all of his disciples. Saul was an arrogant and self-righteous man. Paul writes of himself, If anyone else has a mind to put confidence in the flesh, I far more circumcised the eighth day of the nation of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews, as to the law of Pharisee, as to zeal, a persecutor of the church, as to the righteousness which is in the law found blameless. That's what the Apostle Paul says of himself of himself in Philippians chapter 3. In this letter, just a few verses in, Paul writes, I was formerly a blasphemer and a persecutor and a violent aggressor. Luke in Acts tells us that Saul was breathing threats and murder against the disciples of the Lord. <clears throat> now all of this is important to understand about the Apostle Paul. The depth of his hatred may help us understand the depth of his post-conversion love for and commitment to the church and to the disciples of Jesus Christ. Everything changed for Saul when he met Jesus Christ on the road to Damascus. Uh, From that point on, the apostle Paul's life was set out for him in a completely different path. The Lord said of Paul, Remember, violent, breathing threats and murder. And then the Lord says of Paul, he's a chosen instrument of mine. To bear my name before the Gentiles and kings and the sons of Israel. For I will show him how much he must suffer for my name's sake. That is the commandment of God to the Apostle Paul that is mentioned in this this opening couple of verses. Of the letter to Timothy. He received his office of apostle by the command of Jesus Christ. 
Ironic, isn't it, that the one who brought much suffering to the disciples of Christ would now be told by the Lord that he would suffer for Jesus' sake. He had persecuted Christians himself, and now he would be persecuted for his commitment to Jesus Christ. He would endure an extraordinary amount of suffering. You remember this passage in 2 Corinthians 11, "...and far more labors and far more imprisonments, beaten times without number." Often in danger of death. Five times I received from the Jews 39 lashes. Three times I was beaten with rods. Once I was stoned. Three times I was shipwrecked. The night and the day I've spent in the deep. I've been on frequent journeys and dangers from rivers, dangers from robbers, dangers from my countrymen, dangers from the Gentiles, dangers in the city, dangers in the wilderness, dangers on the sea, dangers among false brethren. I have been in labor and hardship. Through many sleepless nights, in hunger and thirst, often without food, in cold and exposure. (laughs) And then, and this is important in affirming what I said about the Apostle Paul earlier, he he writes in that passage, apart from such external things, There is the daily pressure on me of concern for all the churches. All those dangers, all those sufferings. But but apart from that, there's this burden of the churches that God laid on my shoulders. And that is part of my suffering. Who is weak without my being weak? Who is led into sin without my intense concern? He writes. So there it is. Before his conversion, his zeal had been spent on destroying the church. After his conversion, his zeal is spent on intense concern for the church. Daily pressure on me of concern for all the churches. Uh, Without the church, as you know, maturing in the faith is impossible. These letters written to Timothy express this intense concern that Paul has. That there be well-ordered churches, that there be households of God, that the disciples of Christ might be well cared for and mature in the context of the church. What, what a path for the Apostle Paul. I mean, violent denunciation of this fledgling, weak, early church. To zealous defense and intense concern leading to him dedicating his life to the upbuilding of the church. And as part of that upbuilding, he brought a young man named Timothy into his work. Uh, We first read of of, of Paul and Timothy and their collaboration in the work of the gospel in Acts chapter 16 in the midst of Paul's second missionary journey. Acts 16, 1 through 3 says this, Paul came also to Derbe and to Lystra. And a disciple was there named Timothy, the son of a Jewish woman who was a believer, but his father was a Greek. And he was well spoken of by the brethren who were in Lystra and Iconium. Paul wanted this man to go with him, and he took him and circumcised him because of the Jews who were in those parts, for they all knew that his father was a Greek. It's likely that Timothy was a young man in his teens at that point in the the book of Acts, when he came along with Paul on this missionary work. His mother was a converted Jew. 
His father, it appears, was an unconverted Gentile. And in order to allow, in order to allow for ministry to the Jews, Timothy was circumcised. Uh, so that to the Jews he became as a Jew, so as to win the Jews. Um, this circumcision perhaps shows the intensity of Timothy's commitment to the gospel. In 2 Timothy, we, read, we find that it was Timothy's mother and his grandmother who taught him the scriptures. 2 Timothy 1, it says, I thank God whom I serve with a clear conscience the way my forefathers did, as I constantly remember you in my prayers night and day, longing to see you even as I recall your tears, so that I may be, may be filled with joy. For I am mindful of the sincere faith within you, which first dwelt in your grandmother Lois and your mother Eunice, and I am sure that it is in you as well. And so Paul calls out, his grandmother, and his mother as those that taught him the faith. And this later in 2 Timothy, um, you, however, continue in the things you have learned to become convinced of, knowing from whom you have learned them, and that from childhood you have known the sacred writings, which are able to give you the wisdom that leads to salvation through faith, which is in Jesus Christ. Um, It is very interesting, isn't it, that the Apostle Paul, had been trained in the scriptures also when he was very young. But in an incredibly different manner than had Timothy. Timothy had learned from his childhood about the Messiah who came and suffered and died and rose. From their earliest years, Paul was taught to be a Jew. And Timothy was taught to be a Christian. Paul was... um, converted through miraculous means. Timothy was converted through ordinary means. Teaching of of the scriptures by his mother and grandmother. So for years, Paul and Timothy would travel together through Paul's second and third missionary journeys and into the fourth. Uh, So intense was the bond between them, Paul would refer to Timothy as his son. Meaning his spiritual son as we see in the opening of this letter, true child in the faith. Uh, To the Corinthian church, Paul wrote, For this reason I have sent to you Timothy, who is my beloved and faithful child in the Lord. Um, It appears there was division that occurred between Paul and Peter, and Paul and John Mark, but we read of no such division occurring between Paul and Timothy. Um. Now, where is Paul and where is Timothy when this letter is written? Paul, it seems, from verse 3, has gone on to Macedonia, north of Greece, and has left Timothy behind in Ephesus uh, so that Timothy can bring order to the church there. And so when was this? It is likely that it is the time period after the imprisonment that we read about at the end of final chapter of the book of Acts, chapter 28. It seems quite clear from the testimony of early church historians that Paul was released from imprisonment, that imprisonment in Rome, did some missionary work, work, returned to Rome, and uh, was imprisoned a second time, which led to his martyrdom sometime before AD 68, when 
the Roman emperor Nero died. Um, So the church in Ephesus was suffering from disorder and from false teachers. And Paul entrusts Timothy with this work in, in Ephesus. So if Paul meets Timothy in AD 52, and the letter is written about AD 63, Timothy is likely, again, a young man in his late 20s, perhaps 30. One other point regarding Timothy. It is not merely his ability and faith were recognized by the Apostle Paul alone. Uh, The presbytery had taken pains to set him apart for the work of the gospel. In the fourth chapter of the letter, Paul writes, Do not neglect the spiritual gift within you which was bestowed on you through prophetic utterance. We'll get to that down the road. With the laying on of hands by the presbytery. Okay, other men... Other men had examined Timothy and concurred with Paul's judgment that he would be useful to the church. Timothy was no self-proclaimed pastor. Or today that would be a a self-proclaimed internet prophet. right? A man with a blog and some sort of special knowledge that will cure the evils of the church. Um, He had submitted himself to the church in order to be a servant to the church. And he would go about doing that very same thing, examining men who would then be left in Ephesus to examine other men to carry on the work of the gospel there. This is all about the church. And it appears, uh, when, when you go to seminary and you, get, you have a class on the pastoral epistles, you inevitably argue about what was Timothy? What should we call him? And I have the definitive answer. He's a pastor. He's a pastor. He's there to preach and teach. He's there to preach and teach and lead. For a time, he's organizing churches, but he is there to to lead worship, to the public reading of Scripture, to preaching and teaching. So the Apostle Paul is writing a letter to Timothy, but his intent, it appears, also goes beyond writing to this young man, Timothy. These letters shows some formality that a personal letter would not have. It's reasonable then to think that Paul intended these letters to be read to the congregation over which Timothy had responsibility. Machen, in his introduction to the New Testament, says, though addressed to individuals among Paul's friends, he's talking about the pastoral epistles, 1st, 2nd Timothy, and Titus, They are addressed to them not as individuals, but rather as leaders in the church. From the first, they were intended to be read not by Timothy and Titus alone, but also by the churches over which these men were placed. The church in Ephesus, the church, not just in Ephesus, but everywhere at this time, is growing quickly. Machen writes, the first period in the history of Christianity was over. Christianity had been established in many of the cities of the empire. The existing churches had grown enormously since the writing of Paul's first epistles. The church of Ephesus, for example, at the time of 1 Timothy, was no longer a small group of believers with all of whom the apostle could be intimately acquainted. It had grown, no doubt, into a community of very considerable size. 
And so with that growth, right, comes problems. With that growth comes trouble. With that growth comes disorder. And so order would have to be maintained, and so the Holy Spirit provides the church and all subsequent generations of the church these letters to bring order in his household. Here's what encourages and and pushes me in the whole context of these letters. And this is the drum I'm beating lately. So hear it again. Paul is not concerned to be the man. He's not concerned to build his own kingdom. But he is willing by faith to delegate real responsibility. And in this case, to a young, trustworthy, proven man. He's... He is a father, Paul is, and Timothy is a spiritual son. But he is not the kind of father, Paul is not the kind of father who is so proud that he won't relinquish duties and responsibilities to an underling. Right? He does what he commends to Timothy. The things which you have heard from me in the presence of many witnesses and trust these to faithful men who will be able to teach also. Um, It is the example of Paul in the teaching of Scripture that disciplines me to measure the good of this church by the faith and zeal not merely of myself and her officers, but by the faith and zeal of our children. That will be the true mark. Could it be that the faithfulness of current generations will be marked by their commitment to and preparation of subsequent generations? Undoubtedly. That is a theme of the pastoral epistles and of this book. Think of Titus 2, for example. Machen says, Not every age need begin at the beginning. Rather, must the children stand upon the shoulders of their parents. The second generation must build upon a precious deposit of truth and of experience. But notice that it's the children standing on top of the shoulders of the parents, and it's the children building. In looking at the Apostle Paul and his use of Timothy, we're given a picture of what ministry in the church should look like. The the ministries of the church should be about, one, training the younger to understand the truth and believe in Jesus Christ, and two, handing over real responsibility early when one might be inclined to say that we're being negligent which was one of the complaints that many in the church of Ephesus were making against Timothy. Um, The biggest reformed churches have big men in their pulpits. Men who would never conceive of doing what the apostle Paul did in Ephesus. They are the man. And the pulpit is their pulpit. And the church is their ministry. And the publications are their books. And the conferences are their conferences. And when they... And at those conferences, it's their signature that they put on the books that they have in the lines that they set up to sell their books. And you know what? Their children and the next generation of their churches are neglected. Instead of spending their best years preparing the next generation to take up the torch, they've spent their best years just being the man. Their children do not stand on their shoulders, but merely sit at their feet well past the time when they should move from being consumers to being producers of good and of good teaching. 
You know, how wonderful would it be for the pulpit of 10th Presbyterian, for example, in Philadelphia, be occupied regularly by the children of the church? (laughs) The sons of elders and pastors, the sons of members, rather than by big names with foreign accents, the biggest of which is their senior pastor. Now, don't hear what I'm not saying. The pastor has been installed there to preach the word, to minister, and that is his task. But his task is also to make disciples and create a foundation so that the church can be strong in the next generation. Okay, If we're jealous to build our own kingdoms and to forbid young men to take up responsibility, we are doing the church And our witness a disservice. And we impede the progress of our children. But of course it's risky. It's risky, isn't it? Giving responsibility to young people. Most people avoid giving responsibility to anybody else. But certainly to young people. Um, and, And the way we usually do it is we... We don't give real responsibility. In order to pay lip service to training our children, we'll give them stupid things to do. Stupid, silly, goofy, cute things to do. Right? You know, so it would be inconceivable for a high school student from the church preaching in the pulpit of a tall, steepled church But we'll throw them a five-minute devotional to the junior high Sunday school class on a Tuesday night on the mission trip back in the corners and the the crooks that no one will ever see. Right? And And then we'll pat them on the back and make some sort of joke how about in 30 years you may be up front in the pulpit. It's terrible neglect and pride. Delegation is messy and dangerous. It requires faith and concerted effort on the part of the one delegating and the one taking up the responsibility. That, in a sense, is the entire context of the letter that Paul is writing to Timothy. The senior apostle Paul is out in the middle of nowhere in Macedonia while Timothy labors in one of the, 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 the large previously established churches. And Paul believes it's necessary to encourage Timothy, to direct Timothy, to remind Timothy of the difficulty and importance of the work of ministry. But, but Paul doesn't do the work for him. The apostle also reminds the congregation to do what? To respect Timothy. To not despise him for his youthfulness. So Timothy is, Timothy is there to find the men who, whom he can put in place to carry on the work when he's gone. So the cycle keeps going on and on and on. The most important thing that Timothy will do in Ephesus is find the men he can delegate everything he's doing to. And as soon as he does that, he moves on. And so the, lo- the local church should always be becoming in this world. Now, young men. Young men. Man, they're young. 
Who among you, young men, is going to be a Timothy? You know, there's that side of things too. Who wants to take up responsibility? Who wants to lead? Who wants to glorify God by serving, loving, protecting others? Right? Who will put off childish things? Who's going to put off childish things? Who will... Um, Elijah has his day, but the day comes when Elisha must be ready. And, and I desire to see the young men be like, give me a double portion. Do you see the craziness of Elijah, Elisha's request? Elijah was powerful, and Elisha just wanted twice as much. Um, that there might be young believers who show that kind of audacious desire to serve God. That's what we want to see. All of this is contained in the context of this letter and in the simple reality of Paul writing to Timothy. And so the situation of this letter, the context of the letter is pregnant with meaning. Now, just a few very brief comments um, on a few other elements in this salutation of the letter. There are four very important words in it. Hope, grace, mercy, and peace. I mean, think of those words, hope, grace, mercy, and peace. Um, That's a wonderful quadriad, is that how you say that, of Christian terms, right? Uh, And here they're stated but not explained, right? It's a salutation of letter. Paul is pronouncing a, a greeting, pronouncing a blessing in a sense at the outset of this letter to Timothy and to the church. And so, but, but Paul does say this. He says, Christ Jesus, who is our hope. Hope is wonderfully explained. That hope is wonderfully explained in the sixth chapter of Hebrews. And so listen to this. Hebrews 6.13, for when God made the promise to Abraham. So he's going all the way back to the promise made to Abraham. Since he could swear by no one greater, he, himself, he swore by himself. God swore by himself, saying, I will surely bless you and I will surely multiply you. And so, having patiently waited, he, Abraham, obtained the promise. For men swear by one greater than themselves, and with them an oath given as confirmation is an end of every dispute. In the same way, God, desiring even more to show to the heirs of the promise the unchangeableness of his purpose interposed with an oath, so that by two unchangeable things in which it is impossible for God to lie, we who have taken refuge would have strong encouragement to take hold of the hope set before us. This hope we have, these are beautiful words, this hope we have as what? An anchor of the soul. A hope both sure and steadfast and one which enters into the veil where Jesus has entered as the forerunner for us, having become a high priest forever according to the order of Melchizedek. And so hope is is an anchor for our souls based upon what? Based upon the promises of, of God which are absolutely sure. And Christ is the very embodiment of the promises of God. He is our hope. That's why Paul writes, Christ who is our hope. From the Father and the Son come these three glorious blessings that Paul frequently lumps together in his salutations. 
as if pronouncing a quick blessing upon the recipients. He calls upon God to bless Timothy and his congregation with grace. Grace, getting what he did not earn, which is God's favor. Mercy, not getting what he did earn, which is God's wrath. And peace, a peace made by Christ and and his propitiation. So those three words, deserve or for, if we add hope in there, deserve your study, they deserve your meditation through your entire Christian walk. Do so, meditate on those words, do so, and you may find contentment, more contentment in the coming week than you had last week, because they will fix your mind on on eternal truths and take your mind off of temporary things. The grace, the mercy, and the peace that are yours in Jesus Christ. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you that it is profitable for training in righteousness, for rebuke, for correction, that we may be adequate, equipped for every good work. Lord, we thank you that the Apostle Paul was given a deep, intense concern for the church. And we see that in his commitment to Timothy and to Timothy's ministry, but more so to the churches that Timothy would serve. Father, I pray that you would would help us as we go through this in coming weeks to be trained by your word that we would believe it, that we would accept it, that we would build the foundation of our lives upon it and not upon our foolish notions and opinions. Father, we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.